Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people. I thank you that you do speak to us and that you do encourage us. And I ask that you'd speak again this morning through your word, Lord, in such a way to build up our people into the knowledge and the maturity of God. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. I thank you for peace over every heart, your spirit over every mind. Lord, we pray that you'd give us wisdom to understand and to know the truth that the Word of God speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through Luke chapter one. We're still in one. And I'll put up verse 13 to 17 if Peter knows how to do that, maybe. Verse 13 to 17. Either way, you've heard it before. The angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Uh, if you press clear all on the very right-hand side, Nico, there's a little X, you'll get rid of that background. Tech, there we go, tech this morning. We, we're doing good. The verse I'm looking at is, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. Here comes John and he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's going to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of Christ. And I think it's interesting because it's kind of like John's gonna lead a revival. In fact, as I said last week or the other week, John does lead a revival for some unknown reason, the Spirit of God. Uh, people come from all over Israel, go out into the wilderness to be baptised by Him, to hear from Him, to receive from Him. That's a pretty remarkable sort of thing. I think if we uh, saw that happen today in Australia, imagine if all of Australia went out to some place in the desert to be baptised, to hear the Word of the Lord, we would think that was a revival. But I, I wanna think for a second about what we tend to imagine ha happens in revivals in our minds, because I think we tend to focus on things like spiritual gifts being used, miracles, healings, maybe demons being cast out. Maybe we think of evangelism, Maybe we think about people like the disciples giving up their day jobs, stopping being fishermen and going to follow Jesus. But I wanna notice that it says about John that he's gonna go and he's gonna turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And that is a little bit different to what we expect because that's a revival in family life. Hearts of the fathers to the children is a revival in fatherhood. That's a revival in the thing that happens in the home not a revival in the thing that happens out there. Although, of course, the revival of the thing that happens out there is also on the, on the table. That also occurs. And Luke is directly quoting. He's quoting from the very last lines of the Old Testament. Malachi 4 verse 5 to 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And here's where it gets scary. Lest I come and strike the land with a curse. So that's the very last verse of the Old Testament. It says that he's gonna send Elijah, which is John the Baptist, before the Lord comes to turn the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Because if he doesn't, God is gonna strike the land with a curse. Unless fathers' hearts are turned, God will curse the land. In truth, we talked about this before, but broken 
families are a curse in themselves. I mean, I've talked about this fair enough. You, you know it, right? You know all the evils of fatherlessness. You know, for example, that children who are fatherless economically struggle, mentally struggle, their life expectancy can be reduced, they're more likely to be in prison, they're more likely to struggle uh, fitting in, they're less likely to get married, they're less likely to have... It's so many millions of things when families are broken. We know all that. And today I want to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring families. And I guess I want to encourage us that when we think about revival, when we think about the fallow ground being broken up, God is not just meaning so that we can go out. He's also meaning so that we can go in and love our families better. See, we think, and I've said this again, I'll keep saying it, we are individualistic. We're selfish to the core. We think in terms of what is gonna happen to me. And so when we're thinking about revival, which we're praying for and we want, we usually imagine that God is gonna do a spiritual experience for me and it's all about Him working on me. How is it gonna change me? How is it gonna heal me? But I wanna, I wanna think about how does it make me relate to others? Does it turn the hearts of the fathers to the children or does it just make the fathers feel better about themselves for a moment? Because God actually wants to change how we love and treat other people. That matters. And especially in the family. The family really matters to God. And I'm not just saying this because I just had a baby. Uh, I had a baby because this matters. That's one of the ethos. See, the bad news is that the real you is on display, not at church, but in the home. It's kind of sad. C.S. Lewis tells a story of going to a church and hearing the pastor preach. And it was a wonderful sermon. And the pastor invited him home to lunch and C.S. Lewis sat down with him at the table and the pastor began to yell at his wife and get frustrated at his children. And C.S. Lewis said, what a tragedy that it robbed from his message because he preached well, but his family, his family life, the life in the home was terrible. And the thing is, God actually cares a lot about the family and about how it works. It's very serious to him. Holiness is more than just the lifting of the hands in worship. Oh, I want you to lift your hands in worship. I want you to experience God. I want us to come to a place of of knowing the Lord and being touched by Him. But holiness makes a difference in the home or it isn't holiness at all. Here is, I'm gonna read the passage. This is the yuckiest passage in the entire Bible for modern people. So just bear with me. I know everybody hates this passage. And if I had a dollar for how many times people preach this passage, I reckon I'd have a dollar. It's 1 Peter 3, verse five to seven. John, Don knows it already. It says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you women are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Oh, that's just hideous. Everyone hates that. People skip over it. Verse seven, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I'm not gonna preach the verse. Don't worry, I still keep my dollar. But I wanna notice that Peter is very clear and he's not beaten around the bush here. Don't listen to the people who say, oh, it's ambiguous. No, Peter is very clear that for women and for wives, holiness means a relationship to their, it, mean, it matters in their relationship to their husband. It has particular impacts on how they walk with their husband. And holiness for men, for husbands, matters in how they walk with their wives. 
And if you claim to be holy and full of the Holy Spirit, but you don't walk with your husband or your wife in a certain way, then you're missing some aspect of it. No matter how much you lift your hands, how much you shout, how much you dance, how much you heal the sick, Peter's really clear that holiness matters in the home and it makes a difference to how we walk in the home. I mean, he says to men, your prayers will be hindered if you don't walk with your wives in an understanding way. And I don't know about you, but I kind of don't want my prayers to be hindered. And I probably think that the key to having a better prayer life is to praise more on Sunday and probably is true and make sure I go to prayer meetings and read the Bible more. And that's all very real and good. But the truth is that Peter's kind of clear that unless you, husbands, live with my wife in an understanding way, showing her honour, then my prayers will be hindered. God is not interested in listening to the man who doesn't apply his holiness to the home. And the same is true for women. The Spirit of God wants to heal families, not just individuals. Again, we live in such a hyper-individualistic society. Everything's about me and I and my expression. God just isn't like that. Once you realise how God looks at the world, you start to realise that, okay, a lot of how we think is just, wrong from the start because we think that God sees exclusively us as individuals, but He sees us as individuals placed within circles of family and community. And part of what He expects of us is that we are going to relate to those circles of family and community in a holy way. Not just holy on your own, holy within your family. Christianity broke into ancient Rome. And one of the things that it changed that's most radical is the family. See, in the family in the Christian Rome, husbands or fathers did not have hearts for their children. In fact, Romans, Rome had a very consistent practice of exposing infants. And what they mean by that is that you would have a baby and if you didn't want the baby, you'd leave it on the front doorstep in the gutter and the baby would die and just decompose there and there and get dragged off or eaten by dogs. That was a common practice, not an uncommon practice, a common practice in Rome. Because in the end, fathers didn't necessarily have a heart for their children. In fact, there's a quite famous love letter written by a Roman who's travelling for work and he's, written, he's writing to his pregnant wife. And it's a, it's a love letter. It's full of, I love you, you're my darling, my dearest, I look forward to seeing you. But he also says, as for the pregnant child, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, leave it to die. And his next line is, I look forward to seeing you so much. Don't remember, forget that my heart is with you no matter where you are. That father's heart was not turned towards his child. That father's heart didn't care about his child. And God comes, right? The Spirit of God moves on the church and He changes the hearts of the men and women in the Christian community and suddenly they had a very different attitude. Suddenly Christians are going about, in fact, it was one of the things that they were accused of. Christians were accused of eating babies. And the reason that the Romans figured this out was that Christians would go along the streets and if they found a baby exposed on the side of the, on the sidewalk, which was commonly a girl, they would adopt the child. But Christians then had these services. I talked about this before, but Christian uh, church services were closed affairs. You could come into the worship, but you couldn't come to the communion table unless you were a baptised believer. And at the communion table, people heard Christians say things like, let's drink the blood and eat the body. And the Romans were like, what are they doing with all those baby girls? I reckon they're eating them. That was a genuine charge. In fact, one of the great apologists from the first century wrote a letter and basically said, listen, we do not eat the children. We raise them up because you guys don't care about them. 
You say you're good people, but you expose your babies to be killed. God took Romans as they became Christians. He changed their hearts and suddenly they had a heart for their children. And that is a massive deal. We, just li- we live in such a downstream from that. Christianity has been so sown into our culture that we just can't imagine it being any different. But it was different. And in certain places, it still is different. And that was one of the glories of Christianity. It was one of the greatest things Christianity ever did was that Christians started caring about their children and about other people's children, not just their own. So John the Baptist comes in the Holy Spirit's power and he's going to turn the hearts of father, fathers to their children. And I want to notice it's the heart of fathers. It's not parents. Some modern translations say that and they shouldn't. It is a very poor way of approaching the Bible. It's fathers and it, it matters that it's fathers. Fathers matter. Fathers are important. Like, why is it that Satan works so hard to destroy the father relationship with the child? How many people do you meet who've got father issues? Who've got issues with their dad? How many people do you know who love their mum? There's no problem with their mum, but their dad, I don't talk to my dad very often. How many people do you know who've got abusive fathers? It's fathers. Satan works to destroy the bond between the father and the children. In fact, in Australia, there are a million single parent homes as of the last census. And it's like, I think over 90% of them are single mother homes. And that's a great tragedy. And the church should start to do something about that. But the thing I want to talk about for a little second, a little detour, is that fathers matter. And it really breaks my heart that the church has gotten so caught up in the culture of our day that we, we stop talking about this in the correct way. Fathers matter. They're really important. Satan hates fathers. Listen, Satan hates fathers and that role more than he hates mothers and their role. And the reason is because God is our father. And Satan hates the things that are the image of God. It's the reason why Satan hates marriage. Because marriage is the image of Christ in the church and fathers are meant to be the image of God and his creation. And I'm not not saying that most fathers are very good at that. What I'm saying is that Satan works overtime to try and destroy and trying to rip down dads and try and make dads bad at their job. And I think also trying to belittle the role in society. We want to elevate it. We want to say, hey, this is an honourable thing. I became a dad because I think it's really worth doing. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest things that you'll ever do is to be a dad. And I'm not saying this to try and make anyone feel bad, but I just want to try and talk about it because I'm practicing telling the truth even when it's unpopular, right? That's my practice. Dads, you should take ownership of your children. God says of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I hear today a lot of people, and I talked to Sarah about this before she gave birth, but I hear a lot of people talk, and this was in the hospital too, the language is always the mum's baby. And the dad's like an add-on. He's sort of like this appendage. You read the Bible, it's the opposite way around. Abraham, father of Isaac, father of Jacob. And that's actually, we, 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 like, we don't think. G.K. Chesterton wrote this line that everyone should have tattooed in front of their eyes. He says, if you come upon a fence and you don't know why it's there, don't tear it down until you know what it's for. So we hear this kind of thing about, well, it doesn't really matter. What's the difference? Mum and dad, they're all the same. But I have to say, mum and dads aren't the same. Because Sarah knew whose child that was. She knew that the baby in her womb was hers in the sense that it was literally in her. But as for me, I'm a little bit of an outsider to that. I have a free choice. I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If I wanted to, I could have gotten on a plane 
and gone anywhere in the world and lived a perfectly normal life and had no loss and left Sarah and the child in her womb totally fine because I'm not physically changed by it, but she is. So when the old school people, when the people throughout all of human history said, hey, Abraham, you begat Isaac, I think that there was a reason they did it. And I think it's because they wanted the men to actually take some sense of responsibility and pride. Some sense of, hey, this is my child. This is not just my wife's child. This is my child. I'm the father. And it's meant to be a weight. And listen, it is a weight because the church needs fathers and mum can't be dad. Mum can't be dad. I have to say it a thousand times. Mum can't be dad. We are guilty of a transgenderism in the church Transgenderism is pretending that men and women are the same, but the church often does this too. Oh, it's okay. Mum and dad, it's all interchangeable. No, mum can't be dad. Dad has to be dad. Dad has to be holy. Dad has to step up. Dad has to be a man who takes his role seriously. And I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad if your dad was a loser or your husband wasn't very good at this. I'm trying to say that this is a burning thing in my heart that we must make it once again so that being a father is valuable so that dads will take the responsibility once again. And work for it because people desperately need spiritual fathers. People desperately need natural fathers. You know that being a good dad is a qualification for leadership in the church. It's right there. If you can't manage your own home, you're not suitable to manage the church. I'm like, oh, gee, that's a bit of pressure. (laughs) It's your first field of ministry and discipleship. This is true for women and men. The first place that you're called to evangelize is in your own home. The first place you're called to disciple is in your own home. We know the statistics. We know the statistics. They are rock hard and unchangeable. When dads don't take their faith seriously, the most of their children don't either. When dads do take their faith seriously, the numbers start to shift. And those numbers have been rock solid since they started doing surveys in the 40s and they've never changed one bit because God calls men to be the pastor in their home. He calls father to take that role. The church needs fathers. We need the Spirit of God to turn the hearts of the fathers towards children. This is one of my prayers. One of my prayers is one of the reasons why I want to raise up godly men and be a godly man is because I desperately need the church to have godly fathers with hearts that are for their children. And listen, I don't think it's just towards natural children. I think it's towards spiritual children too. God's done this for me a couple of times in my life where there's been someone who's come into my life who's not my own child, of course, but I've had a heart for them. And I think you do that for mums and dads, but we desperately need the dads to do it. We desperately need men to say, I'm going to have a heart. I'm going to lay down my life in sacrificial service for this child, even if it's a spiritual child. It could be somebody who's immature in the faith. Some people need some strong leadership. There are some people who need a dad, and I'm talking spiritual people. I had this. I've told you before, but... Uh, Ross actually knows Lloyd Gill, and Lloyd's a strong fella. And Lloyd became a bit of a spiritual father to me when I was a teenager. And my own dad is wonderful and soft and gentle. And this guy, Lloyd, was not particularly, well, he's soft, but gentle is a different word. Um, Country fella, kind of strong. And he kind of got me by the scruff of the neck and a little bit beat me up a little bit in a certain way. I mean, not physically, obviously, but he was just very strong. And you know what? I needed that. I desperately needed that. I needed a guy to do that for me at that age, 17, 18 or 19. And it's one of the reasons why I'm here. And so men, and listen, women, I'll get to, well, I'll get to everybody. It's all in there. We're just going to talk about blokes for a moment. 
The spirit of the age, listen, the spirit of the age, the Antichrist spirit will whisper in your ear in a pathetic little whiny voice. And you hear this all the time. But what about mothers? Oh, we're being left out. Shh, just shh, shh, just shh. Okay, just shush it. It's important to talk about dads. It's really important to emphasize it. And ladies, I need you guys to love fathers and pray for fathers. We know, you all know, you know it in your heart of hearts that if our church, if we had half as many good fathers as we have good mothers, we'd probably have a revival already. You all know that. So put some prayer into it. Encourage people. Pray that the Spirit of God will turn the hearts of the fathers to children. Don't be, do not be caught up. I will, I will rant about our culture if I have the chance. I will not do it today. I'll do a little bit, a little tiny rant. Ready? The Anglican Church recently had their thing where they said they were going to bless same-sex unions. And in that disaster, a group of uh, people pushed this idea. They said, hey, we want to redefine God. We don't want to call him father anymore. We think that's a bit sexist and exclusive. So we want to refer to him as they and them. I don't know if you saw this in the paper. Some peaceful words. Some heretic from South Australia said that they already did that. (laughs) Um, God is our father. That is the spirit of the age. It It must be kicked out of churches. No, God is our heavenly father. And God values fatherhood. God is the father to the fatherless. God is the dad to those with lousy dads, which I know is a lot of us. God doesn't want to just be your king and your Lord. I've said it before. God wants to also be your father. The picture that I always have in my head is that God does not just want you to come and bow before his throne. He wants you to come and sit with him on his couch. And he wants to read you a storybook at night or whatever the image is. He wants to be your father. But just as that image of God the Father flows into creation, he also wants men specifically to rise up and try to imitate that fatherhood of God. And of course, they're not going to do a very good job of it. And of course, it's not a domineering thing. It's a self-sacrificial thing. But I don't think I have to say this anymore because we all know it. And if you don't know it, read the Word. The picture is that God is the Father, strong, kind, trustworthy, and that God the Father, when we were enemies of Him, sent Christ His Son so that you could become a child of God. That's the point, is that God designed the world in such a way to to reflect who He is. And in my own being a dad, and we'll talk more about fatherhood and motherhood and all that sort of stuff, but in my own call to be a dad, I feel like the call is, to imitate as much as possible the fatherhood of God. And that means self-sacrificial, putting myself last, all that kind of stuff, giving of what I have. God the Father sent Christ His Son so that we could become children of God. I'm going to close because I think I've gotten lost. What's my point? Men, we need to ask the Spirit to change us and to turn our hearts. I don't think that the hearts of our day are turned towards the children. I think that our culture despises children because they're a bit of a nuisance. And I see that as much in the church as out of it. I see people I love and respect, maybe they're just being silly or they're just being careless, but there's a constant language about, I just can't wait to school term to get rid of the kids. I can't wait till they're out of home. I can't wait. It's such a pain. It's such a burden. I've heard pastors who I otherwise admire say this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, I think we've got to turn the hearts. I know that's difficult. 
I've already lost most of my sleep for the last two weeks. If this sermon's bad, you can blame it on that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just think we have to start praying for God to do exactly what He did when John the Baptist came and turned the hearts of the fathers to the children. And I think just as much we need it in the church as anywhere else. I think we need it in the church more. Like I think men in the church should start to see themselves as the pastors of their home. And you know, that's going to require you to do a little bit of work. You might have to learn how to read the Bible and how to teach the Bible. You might have to work out how to teach your children what the evil that's coming in from the world means and how to stop it. That might actually be hard. Sometimes I think preaching is going to be a little bit easier than helping my son understand God. Because of course, I have to also develop character because your kid sees who you are. You can't get away with just lifting your hands on Sunday. You've got to get in the car afterwards. <laughs> so discouraging that we have to do that, right? I said this this week. I was talking to someone. I said, the worst thing about life is that you have to keep seeing people after you've made a fool of yourself. <laughs> you, can't, you say the wrong thing and then they're still there. Oh, you know, that's definitely what happens in marriage. It's definitely what happens in the family. So men, you know, those of you who are going to become dads and those of you who already Past that point, you still needed to be a father in the church. Man, I really want us to be a heart, have a heart towards not just children, but those who are spiritual children, which is anybody who's really new to the faith. And ladies, you've got to pray that God will do that too. And you've got to encourage it. And in our day and age, some of you have got to let it. Let it happen. We've got to pray for this because if it was important enough for John the Baptist, it was a qualifying, it says, he came to make ready for the Lord a people prepared and part of the preparation was hearts to the fathers. If that was necessary, if that was a necessary ingredient for Christ to come and to be effective, why do you think it would be any different now? I don't necessarily follow the logic that hearts of the fathers to the children is less important now than it was then. And maybe it's the case that just as the Old Testament closed, with a promise. And the New Testament begins with a promise. Maybe it is at the very end of the age, that's one of the things that God also wants to do, is to turn the hearts of fathers back towards children. So we want to pray for that. We want to ask God for it. And we want to be encouraged too, because the Lord has made us His children through sending Christ His Son. John the Baptist will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. We want to pray that that's so. I'm going to pray that's true. I'm going to pray that. Then we're going to sing, and I hope this has been at all edifying. As I said, if it hasn't, I blame sleep. Now, the lack of it. The Spirit of God's good. But uh, why don't you bow your heads? Let's pray. I, I do want to pray. I also want to say, I said on the Wednesday night, something different, but we are going to have a prayer meeting again this week. We actually had a really good prayer meeting this week. The Spirit of God was present. Josh talks about breaking up the fallow ground. That might be one of the ways we've got to do it. Seek the Lord in prayer. And one of the things we've got to pray desperately for, the revival that I keep imagining in my head is a revival of particularly men coming into godliness and holiness, but a whole generation. I, I, like, to, I like to picture it. Mums and dads together raising kids in the Lord. And I know that life is more difficult and complicated than that, but we want it. And the early church got it. And if the early church got it, then we can believe that God will do it again in his own way. And of course, he'll make lots of accommodations for the people who haven't got dads, for the people who haven't got children. Everybody is part of the family.
Everybody's a father and a mother, whether or not you have natural children. It's all part of God's plan. Bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way in which you have made each one of us. And Lord, I thank you for sending your son. Lord, you sent your son, you gave him up for us so that we might be called children of God. Lord, we want to pray that you would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Lord, across this nation, we pray that you would prepare a people for the Lord. We want to see revival. We want to see an outpouring of your spirit and transformation. And so, Lord, we come before you asking that you would send the spirit, Lord, the same Holy Spirit that filled John the Baptist, you'd send it into our midst and him into our midst and out into this city and into our nation. And the Lord, you'd turn people's hearts back towards each other. And Lord, I ask for a grace in this place for fatherhood, that our people would be full of this goodness, that, Lord, we would have holy men, humble men, Lord, that we would have plenty of children. We ask for that grace, Lord, that you would release, you'd open wombs in this place and you'd give to people children and you'd give to the fathers, Lord, sons and daughters and you'd help us to love them. We pray in Jesus' Name. Lord, bless our week. Go before us, go with us. Thank you. Amen.